Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, April 19th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So yes, the carrier group Carl Vinson was steaming into not North Korea, but Australia embarrassing. Also not steaming, not steaming at all. The Nimitz-class carriers, like the Carl Vinson, they're all propelled by engines using nuclear reactors. But I guess you can't say it was nuking toward North Korea, can you? No, you can't, because that muddies the message. Also, quite to the point, it wasn't nuking towards North Korea, it was nuking towards Australia. So fine, yes, an embarrassment for the administration and the Pacific Fleet. The Pacific Fleet also told us that it was going to North Korea. But really, would you rather have the Trump administration actually having a fully armed aircraft carrier off the coast of a dangerous country like North Korea? Wouldn't it be better, like Australia? Maybe Australia is a safer place to park that particular toy. That said, I still, as an American, get my back up a little bit when I see some of these comments from the Koreans, both North and South. According to the Wall Street Journal, North Korea's state-run news service said, Washington, quote, now bluffs that it was a warning act. All right. All right there, North Korea. You want to talk bluff? How about your entire nuclear program? Yes, some might fire. Might. You got an ICBM canister on parade, but no ICBMs in the canister. Look, talk to me when you can make a reliable toaster oven in your country before you start talking about bluffing. But even South Korea got into the act. Also from the journal, Hong Jun Po, candidate for president, said what Donald Trump said was very important for the national security of South Korea. If that was a lie, then during Trump's term, South Korea will not trust whatever Trump says. Okay, Hong Jun Pyo. You know, this guy is from the same South Korean party as the ousted and now indicted former president. You want to talk about honest presidents? Look, and I'm not saying Donald Trump is. In fact, quite the opposite. But there have been 44 U.S. presidents. See, Cleveland did it twice. That's why Trump's number 45. So four times as many U.S. presidents as there have been Korean presidents. And when we go down the list of Korean presidents, I don't think we find such honesty. Let's do it. Come with me down that path of South Korean presidents. Their first president, the presidency ended in resignation following popular protests against the disputed election. Number two, ousted in a coup. Number three, Military strongman shot dead by his version of the CIA director. Oh, by the way, that guy's daughter, uh, she was the one who was just indicted. Number four, ousted in a coup. Number five, 
led the aforementioned coup, eventually arrested for corruption, massacring his own people, sentenced to death. The sentence was lifted, lives in disgrace. Sixth, convicted of treason, mutiny, and corruption, sentence commuted, still paid a fine in the millions for what he stole. Seventh, okay, president, a good president, the Nelson Mandela of South Korea, President Kim Dae-jung, he won the Nobel Prize. Ninth, impeached, that was overturned by the courts, served out as the least popular Korean president, wound up committing suicide on his duck farm, apologizing for the suffering he caused. Tenth president, served one term, not bad. Eleventh, that was the lady who was just impeached, indicted. Also, she abandoned her puppies after being driven from office. So we've all had our share of shady presidents, but you've had a much, much bigger share. Okay, and also one last point of the USA, North Korea and South Korea, there's only one country that even has one aircraft carrier to lie about. So just FYI, ROK and DPRK, SMH. On the show today, I spiel about two suicides in the news and how we think about the death of bad men. But first, a pay-in to the prepared, a celebration of the scholarly, an elegy to expertise. Tom Nichols is here to discuss his book, The Death of Expertise. Tom Nichols is a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College and an adjunct professor at the Harvard Extension School, a former aide in the U.S. Senate. I could list seven of the books he's written. His new one is called The Death of Expertise. The reason I start by listing his credentials is that there was a time where we would look at those credentials and say, ah, now there's someone who I would like to hear what he says. But in this day and age, as implied by the book of the death of expertise, those credentials are maybe now something he has to answer for or something to ignore or something that you and I could combat, not with a credential, but, you know, just some other idea or something we read somewhere. The subtitle of the death of expertise is the campaign against established knowledge and why it matters. And Tom Nichols is here. Hello, Tom. Hi, Mike. So I think listeners can understand the thesis of your book by the title, and I will compliment it by saying it was a really interesting read. And where I think it was the strongest is your explanations on how we fool ourselves or how society has fooled itself or how society and individuals have motivated reasoning to get to this point where expertise is so denigrated. The simple heuristics we use, the institutions we no longer rely on, you know, the shape of society. But there are certain parts of the book that I questioned. And one is kind of the always ever thus question. This is what I was saying to myself. I wonder how new is the death of expertise. As long as I've been alive, powerful people have used the idea of the common touch. And this goes back, I mean, centuries, but certainly to Huey Long and Richard Nixon and criticizing the eggheads and what do they know and common sense and street knowledge beats book knowledge. So wasn't a version of this always present in American life? Sure. I mean, there's always been this anti-intellectual streak. It's kind of uh, one of the things that made our country great is that we you know, rely on our own common sense, that we have that kind of frontier spirit, that we don't just defer to people that we think might be our betters or you know, better educated than we are. Tocqueville talks about it going all the way back to the 1700s, 1800s. There was a book about 60 years ago where uh, Richard Hofstetter talked about anti-intellectualism in American life. So th- it has a long, proud pedigree. But something has changed. It used to be that people were skeptical of the eggheads or 
they would accept their advice, but they were kind of resentful of it. They'd say, yeah, but, you know, smart people, but I still don't have to like them. I, I tell a story in the book where uh, my brother used to own a bar and I would hang out there and people didn't you know, know that I was a professor. And one night I walked out and guy turns to my brother and says, he's a professor, huh? And my brother says, yeah. And he says, well, he seems like a good guy anyway. Yeah. Like you kind of just get used to that. But something's different now where people not only question experts or reject their solutions, they actually replace experts. They think they're as smart as experts. I think this is part of just an epidemic of narcissism where people have really become kind of like Fredo nation, you know, from the godfather where everybody's saying, I'm smart. I can do things. I'm as smart as an expert. And, and you know, when in fact that's simply not true and, and society can't work that way. I mean we're not all as smart as each other about everything. But, but people have convinced themselves through a myriad of ways that they're as smart as experts, whether it's doctors or diplomats. They, they just don't want to hear that advice and they think they can replace it themselves. Yeah, well, let's hope the nation doesn't go on a uh, two-man fishing trip and have the faith that Fredo <laughs> did. It's interesting where we talk about how there was always this strain. I, I was thinking of Nixon, and Nixon always famously campaigned against eggheads, and he emboldened his vice president to go out there and rail against the nattering sure. nabobs of negativity. But this was at the same time, he was you know, leaning on the best and the brightest to persecute the Vietnam War. This was at the same time, he certainly had a bunch of, like most of those guys who went to jail for Watergate had some sort of uh, pedigree from an elite institution. Right. It's important to remember about Nixon that his closest advisor was a Harvard professor named Henry Kissinger. I think part of the problem here and part of the, the confusion we're having is that in the modern era, in the 21st century, people have confused powerful elites with experts. And they use those interchangeably now. They talk about the experts and the elites as if those are the same people. And I think for you know one thing that's very clear, and I should make clear that I don't speak here for the Navy or the government or anybody else. Um, I think one thing that's very clear in our modern politics is that the people who are the elites who are in power may not necessarily be experts or even very knowledgeable about anything. And yet the average person I think says, well – you know, this problem or that problem is because of the experts when what they really mean is this problem or that problem is because of people that are in power who are elites. And I think Nixon actually, you know, let's let's say a kind word about Richard Nixon here. He actually made that distinction pretty well between kind of moneyed elite, you know, bankers and Eastern educated folks who were controlling the political power structures of the 1950s and 60s as opposed to people that were highly educated and very smart, such as you know Henry Kissinger and some of the other people that were in Nixon's cabinet on whom he relied. And I think that that's an important distinction to make. When Agnew got out there and talked about nattering nabobs of negativism, still one of the greatest phrases ever. Yeah, written um, by elite, elitist William Sapphire, by the way. But exactly. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say it was penned by William Sapphire, who was not exactly William Saroyan coming out of a new San Francisco bar writing this stuff. He was talking about journalists and he was talking about a very specific uh, slice of elite media opinion. So I think in those days, I think Nixon and Agnew, they made a distinction between experts and elites that we don't make anymore. People just use those terms interchangeably and they really shouldn't. Now, you mentioned mistaking elites or mistaking expertise for people in power. And, And that is the word that kept coming back to me, powerlessness. This attack on expertise is so 
wrapped up and stems from people's sense of powerlessness. And they say to themselves, this guy thinks he's so smart. But that expression was never said by a guy with actual power who's convinced of their power. A happy person, like successful people will use the line, I'm smart enough to know what I don't know. Like that's the thing that's said by a CEO who has a lot of agency. The thing said by the person who's maybe put out of work by that CEO is, you know, that guy doesn't know anything. Yeah, they're all idiots. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in the book, I quote the great C.S. Lewis, but not, as much as I'd like to take credit for the line, but it was C.S. Lewis who uh, back in the 50s had a great line that came from his literary creation, Screwtape, this demon that he, he uh, used to speak through as, a, as part of his apologetics for a series of books he wrote. And um, he had Screwtape saying, you know, no man who says I'm as good as you truly believes it because he wouldn't say it if he did. Right. And right. that, I think, is the epidemic of this kind of narcissistic insecurity that has overtaken us in the modern era. And I think rejection of expertise in general is in every one of its cycles, whether back in the 1960s or before, it is a reaction to powerlessness. It's a reaction to confusion. It's a reaction to a very unsettling and scary world. And because things seem to be spinning out of control, because things seem to be so complicated, I think the average person says, well, somewhere, because this world is so confusing and difficult, somewhere there's an expert screwing something up because that's the only mm-hmm. explanation that makes any sense. Or, or look at all these people who call themselves experts and the world still is uh, spinning out of control. So what's, you, right. what's the use of the experts? One step to what's the use of the so-called experts. Next step to I'm going to go find my own experts. Right. Now, I actually have a whole chapter in the book about where experts get things wrong. We do screw up. I mean, you know, there's no doubt about it. But I also think that that you know, the world is such a mess. The, what good are the experts? Really ignores that the world is not nearly the mess that people think it is. There was a piece uh, in USA Today that was pretty critical of the book where Glenn Reynolds, the libertarian blogger, said, you know, in 50 years, what have, what have experts done for us? And I looked around <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. You know, I, I would say creating an immensely prosperous global system of peace, trade and cooperation with the highest standard of living and the longest lifespans humanity's ever known probably be pretty good mark in the OK column. But yeah. if you think that's nothing, then that's nothing. And I, right. and I think it says something about expertise that people have come to rely on it so much that they think it's capable of miracles. And when that doesn't happen, you know, when experts – because we're never popular. We're always the people who step forward and say, okay, you know, we're not going to build a wall with Mexico in the next 10 minutes. We're not going to cure poverty overnight. We're not going to reopen factories in Pennsylvania. We're not going to, you know, cure cancer next week. Um, People say, well, then what good are you guys? And, you know, that's just a part of human nature in a very affluent, advanced society. Well, well, good. We could create the charts and studies that document that your job is going away and your kids getting addicted to opioids. I mean, we'll we'll totally uh, nail that and describe it correctly. We just can't solve it. Well, and and you know that's part of the problem is that when the experts say, "Look, here's all the data and here's what's happening." And then they turn to us and say, well, you should fix it. Well, we're not the fixers. We're not the deciders. And I, I hammer this point in the book toward the end to say, look, I was a, a – you know, you mentioned it in the introduction. I was a staff member for a U.S. senator. I also worked for a state legislator. I worked in a state house where a lot of the real action about economics and prosperity really take place. And, you know, the fact of the matter is the experts are not the deciders. And I yes. think a lot of this anger toward experts, and I will say this as an expert now talking back to the public, I think a lot of this is scapegoating. 
You know, we made bad decisions at the ballot box. We had expectations that were unrealistic. We wanted to square a circle that couldn't be squared. And when it all – when things went bad on that, you experts somehow screwed up, to which I always say, you, the voters, need to own your piece of this. Right. We're not the deciders. And the deciders, elected officials, have to say two things. One, things are terrible. When, as we establish, they're not. You know, you got to say things like, oh, my God, the world is riven. Well, maybe if you didn't know that there was a Congo war or an Iran-Iraq war, what's going on now seems unprecedented, but it's not. Okay, right. so so uh, thesis one is things have never been worse. And thesis two is things are only going to get better. So it's <laughs> impossible to say what I think is reality. You know what? Things are pretty good. But if you're a blue collar worker with a high school education, things probably won't get good for you. And if you do say that, people will shake their heads and look at you and say, you know, you just don't get it. You, you really hit on something there, Mike, when you said about, you know, the, the line always has to be things have never been worse. That drives me up a wall, especially when I'm teaching younger during, – during the evenings, I teach younger students and they say, oh, professor, you don't understand. This is just the worst economy ever, they say, <laughs> as they're tapping away on a MacBook and texting their friends on an iPhone about how awful the economy is. It's almost like you're at a loss to say, no, even within my you know, middle-aged living memory, there have been worse economic times than this. And they just don't want to believe that because, as you point out, the drumbeat is things have never been worse. Experts screwed this all up. Get rid of all those guys and I'll come in and I'll bring my guys and we'll fix it all. So if the death of expertise is uh, endemic and spreading and we've documented it was always thus, but maybe it is getting worse. The question is, why is it getting worse? There's the technological explanations that we slaughter the gatekeepers, we democratize information. There's a lot of good to that. There's a lot of ill to that. But I wonder to what extent you think that the phenomenon you're writing about is driven by cynical actors who know this is going on and are exactly trying to exploit it. Sure, people could come to their own conclusions and, you know, denigrate an expert on vaccines and seek out uh, someone that fits with their own opinion. But what about the people who want to, who are who are fossil fuel producers and therefore they fund consortiums and research groups that come out with junk science on fossil fuels, that sort of thing? There's no doubt that that's happening. There's no doubt that there are a lot of smart people in the world who have figured out that without gatekeepers... It's easy for them to flood the zone with nonsense. There's nothing to be done about that because we live in an open society. The only inoculation against this is for people to be smarter and engage their critical thinking abilities more than they are now. And the problem is people don't go into the information world, whether it's the media or a podcast or the internet, to learn more. They go to have their confirmation bias confirmed. And one of the things you know that the book makes very clear is there is no stronger drug in the world than confirmation bias. It's the crack that we all live on. And, you know, until you can get past that, you are a mark. You are a target for this kind of manipulation of information out there by all kinds of unscrupulous people. Tom Nichols is the author of The Death of Expertise, the campaign against established knowledge and why it matters. Thanks for sharing your expertise with us, Tom. Thanks for having me.
And now the spiel. Today, Aaron Hernandez, the former tight end of the New England Patriots, was found hanged in his prison cell. The day before, a man named Steve Stevens took his own life after targeting and killing a septuagenarian he didn't know and posting it on Facebook. This got Stevens the name the Facebook killer. I suspect one day he might be known as the first Facebook killer. The difference in the coverage of each man's fate was striking. Both were murderers. Both were surely guilty of their crimes, of which there were no mitigating circumstances. Now, the second that Stevens became known to the public, he was a killer on the lam, and therefore he was a threat to the community. So it's understandable that his death brought with it a measure of relief to Cleveland. Hernandez, on the other hand, was better known as a star athlete who grew up in the same area where he earned fame as a professional. So there's a difference between Stevens and Hernandez, of course. But I think there's more than that to how different the deaths were covered. ESPN's Adam Schefter, speaking with Hannah Storm, struggled to find the exact words to describe Hernandez's suicide. He was involved in the incident that he was. He was involved in taking another man's life, ruining other people's lives, and now he has taken his own life. How does one even begin to understand how a young man who was so talented, who grew up right here, uh, in Bristol, Connecticut, how it got to this point, how this became a, such a tragedy in every respect for him and for so many other people's lives. Tragedy. That was the word associated with Hernandez. It was said there by Storm earlier on ESPN on the Mike and Mike show. They talked about the same word. Bill Belichick just called the whole situation a tragedy last week. So it will be, to say the very least, an unusual day in Washington today. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, tragedy is the first word that came to my mind. And when you said that Coach Belichick, that that's the, the word he associated with, with Aaron, it's just very, it's just very appropriate. Tragedy, such a tragedy. And it is a tragedy because they were senseless killings. But in the Facebook killer case, the tragedy or notion of tragedy was more narrowly applied, usually only in speaking about the victim. Senseless? That describes killing a stranger for no reason, certainly. But with Hernandez, the blanket of tragedy was thrown much wider. His entire ordeal was said to be a tragedy. Tragic for the victim, Odin Lloyd, and Hernandez. And when you think about it, it does take some extension of sympathy to the murderer to come to the conclusion that he's part of the tragedy, to extend to him a share of the sadness that marks the entire sequence of action. Most murderers are thought to perpetuate a tragedy, not to be ensnared within one. When we say that the Aaron Hernandez story was tragic, we're extending sympathy. We're not reducing him to an evildoer whose role was just to set the tragedy in motion. But maybe it's not sympathy we're extending, or not consciously extending. When you think about it, the meaning of tragedy, in a dramatic sense, is a work where the protagonist dies. Hernandez is thought of as taking part in a tragedy because he was the protagonist. We knew him before the murder. The murder story focused on him. It was more covered on sports channels than on crime channels. Hernandez became a real person about who we wonder what went wrong. How could he make such choices? You know, we grant him his humanity. We don't do that with Stevens because we don't know him. We never knew him as something other than the guy who killed a 73-year-old man who he didn't even know. We might have read details of Stephen's gambling debts or desperation, but didn't really flesh out the complete picture of a man. 
Now, there's another story that's going on in the news that made me think of both these killers who killed themselves. It's the story of the seven Arkansas inmates set to be put to death, but then they were spared because the state was in a rush to use certain chemicals. I'm against the death penalty, but mostly because I wonder about fairness of application and the possibility of getting it wrong, of murdering someone who didn't commit the crime. And yet, when a murderer, within days of committing a crime and on the run, ends it with a shot to his temple, I say, essentially, good. That's what I said about Stevens. Something close to good. I'm glad no one else got hurt. I don't really have much sympathy for the killer. So why is it that if he turns himself in, if he spends years in jail, if he exhausts numerous appeals, and then at the very last minute, if he gets a stay of execution, I also say good. Is it that in the intervening years, I focus less on the crime? Maybe, here's another theory, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I was wrong yesterday to say good that Stevens killed himself, that I'm callous in my first Blanche reaction. It's an instinct. It's not well thought out. When I heard Stevens killed himself and I didn't care, I was reacting with instinct. With Hernandez, I wasn't glad he was dead, but I was far from distraught. I didn't say good and nod my head, but I did shake my head and I said, why? I said, so sad, which is the uh, two-syllable way to say it's a tragedy. It's just the thing you say to get past the questions you can't answer about other people's motivations and our own reactions. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube wrote a book inspired by the death of expertise. It was about Arnold Schwarzenegger's portrayal of a Batman villain, The Death of Mr. Freeze. Mary Wilson, just producer, suggested a subtitle for Chris's book, The Death of Mr. Freeze icing the bad guy. Steve Lichtai, executive director of Slate Podcast, notes that the three actors who played Mr. Freeze in the original Batman TV series were Eli Wallach, Otto Preminger, and George Sanders, two Oscar nominations for directing, one Oscar win for acting, and one Lifetime Achievement Academy Award among those three Mr. Freezes. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, prefers the Eli Wallach Mr. Freeze to the Otto Preminger, but he also prefers... To Lula Bankhead as Black Widow, to Ethel Merman's Lola Lasagna. The gist we went from suicide to Lola Lasagna in like two minutes. Not proud of it, just saying it's something we did. Umpru de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>